Welcome to the ICU podcast, where we explore the vestibular experience through conversations between patients and the health professionals who care for them. During this podcast, we invite patients to share their stories and healthcare professionals to ask questions so they are equipped to better care for and truly see the invisible challenges faced by their patients. I'm Kimberly Warner. And I'm Cynthia Ryan. And we are your hosts on this journey of discovery. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the ICU podcast. I'm Cynthia Ryan here with uh, Kimberly Warner, your hosts, and uh, we are excited today uh, to talk to Alicia Wolf and Jessica Liefers about diet and nutrition in uh, in managing vestibular disorders. I want to uh, I want to pause before we get started um, and just let everybody know I have a, a personal announcement. Um, I am a new mother of two kitties, <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are watching. Um, the uh, our our YouTube channel the the video of this um, you may see some disruption in the background um, and I apologize in advance so uh, but I will if if they do come I will introduce them all to you uh, so anyway let me tell you a little bit about what we're gonna do today um, so I don't know about you guys but I like to eat um, probably too much and I'm pretty picky about my food I like food that's full of flavor and the occasional or let's be honest sometimes more than occasional alcoholic beverage that can be pretty nice um, however for many people with vestibular disorders and in particular Meniere's disease and vestibular migraine what they eat can trigger dizziness, vertigo, nausea, and other symptoms. The good news is that certain dietary modifications can help you manage your symptoms. Figuring out what to eliminate from your diet can be tricky though. Not only are triggers different for each person, but you have to be aware of maintaining a balanced diet and you want it to taste good too. So today we're talking to Alicia Wolf, otherwise known as the Dizzy Cook, about the role diet and nutrition play in managing her vestibular symptoms, and just Jessica Liefers, who is a vestibular patient as well, and also a registered dietitian and nutrition researcher. Um, and Jessica is going to uh, talk to us about what to watch out for when making changes to your diet. So welcome to Alicia and Jessica. Thank you for having me. Yes. And let me, let me tell you guys a little bit about um, Jessica. So Jessica is a registered dietitian and associate professor of nutrition and dietetics at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Canada. That's fun to say. She's published more than 50 peer-reviewed research articles in various areas of nutrition and dietetics. She also teaches in the nutrition program at the University of Saskatchewan, Sorry about that. Um, you got it. <laughs> trained students to be dietitians and supervises masters and PhD students in nutrition. She's on the board of editors for the Journal of uh, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics here in the U.S. Um, Jessica has been living with a vestibular disorder since 2018, and she brings both her professional and patient experience to this podcast. Kimberly, I'll pass it off to you. Okay. Um, welcome, Jessica. We're so happy to have you here. And Thank welcome, you for having me. Yeah. And welcome, Alicia. This is going to be such a, an amazing conversation. Most of you already know about 
Alicia Wolf, the incredible Dizzy Cook. Um, she is a cookbook author, obviously, recipe developer, and vestibular migraine advocate. She was diagnosed with chronic vestibular migraine in 2016, originally a self-taught chef. She honed her skills by attending culinary immersion programs in Dallas, Texas, and France, which is amazing. Her um, first cookbook, The Dizzy Cook, was published February 2020 and has been considered an Amazon bestseller in the pain management category. Her new cookbook, The Mediterranean Migraine Diet, A Science-Based Roadmap to Controlling Symptoms and Transforming Brain Health, was created in partnership with her neurologist, Dr. Shin Bei. Both books are available almost everywhere. Books are sold. I have both of them and I use them all the time. My hands down favorite recipe is the enchilada with the tomatillo green salsa. It's a winner. So anyway, we are so happy to have you guys here. Thank you, Alicia, too, for joining us with your child care duties uh, 24-7. <laughs> Um, Thank you. Again, a lot of people know about you, but some don't. So, can you tell us a little bit about your vestibular history and how you discovered that managing your diet improved those symptoms? And maybe touch on the elimination diet too. Yeah. So, I was diagnosed, I think I'm coming up on eight years uh, with chronic vestibular migraine. And now we probably think I had an element of triple PD and with that as well. But back then it wasn't being diagnosed as often. And I was diagnosed after about seven months of just feeling totally dizzy, unstable. I felt like I was walking on marshmallows or that I, the, I was moving when I wasn't. Um, I had periods of vertigo as I went without treatment. Uh, a lot of the doctors just kind of brushed me off and they kept giving me steroids and telling me I would feel better eventually. And I never did. Um, got misdiagnosed a lot, was told it was just anxiety and stress until I finally went to the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. I did two full days of vestibular testing there, as well as I had already had an MRI previously from a really bad vertigo attack. And the doctor came in, he said, you had vestibular migraine. And I said, well, no, I, how can I have a migraine attack without a headache? And that's when he explained vestibular migraine to me. But he was an ENT that really specialized in paralymph fistula. So he told me that I would need to see a neurologist or a neurotologist to um, have the proper treatment. Luckily for me, my current neurologist is an expert in unexplained dizziness. And about the time that I left Mayo was the time that his office called me that they had an opening for an appointment for me. So I went to go see him. He did a few of his own tests and he confirmed my diagnosis was vestibular migraine. So after having two doctors confirm this, I finally accepted it as my diagnosis, even though it was so hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that I could have these symptoms of dizziness, light sensitivity, vertigo, this off balance feeling. Um, sometimes I felt like my head would just pop off and float away and they were constant for me. I mean, unrelenting 24 seven. And it was so hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that that was actually a migraine attack because all I was ever told, you know, from the media and all we see is that migraine just means a really bad headache. And so this opened up a whole new world to me of trying to figure out how to manage this this type of migraine with very few resources at the time. 
now it's becoming a lot more talked about, a lot more diagnosed, um, a lot more commonly diagnosed. There are more treatments that are coming out for it. So it's very exciting to see the evolution since I was diagnosed versus the history of it. But back then, there wasn't a lot to do, especially regarding women who wanted to try to get pregnant. At the time, the new anti-CGRP meds were just in the beginning stages. They were just coming out um, and they were definitely not being prescribed for people who were trying to conceive. Even now, I I don't think they're recommended. Um, And so my doctor and I worked on some medications and lifestyle changes that could potentially bring down those 24-7 symptoms of dizziness and vertigo and all all those other things for me. Um, And a part of that was to look at my sleep hygiene, so like how much I was sleeping, my hydration, but then also to look at my diet. Um, At the time, he he recommended or he mentioned that elimination diet was out there. Um, there was this famous book called Heal Your Headache that had been written. And he said, you know, there's not a lot of scientific evidence for it, but it could be worth a try considering you are trying to go the more natural route with treatments. So he had seen varied success with patients, but he thought it was, you know, a good thing to, to try if I wanted to. And so that's when I started down this path of trying to figure out an elimination diet, how to cook for it, how to eat for it. And for someone like me who has experience with cooking in the past, it was very difficult. Uh, I went to the grocery store, I started reading labels and not just looking at the front of the label, which says, oh, healthy, all these things, buzzwords, and actually looking at the ingredient list on the back and trying to understand what those ingredients meant and how it could potentially trigger some of my attacks. So through this process, I remember very vividly, I was doing this elimination. It was very difficult to change my eating habits because at the time I was having uh, caffeine every single morning with oat milk or nut, actually nut milks in it and almond milk. And I was eating a lot of nuts thinking I was doing something really healthy for myself. I had heard that nuts were really good for brain health. Um, I was uh, also eating a lot of yogurt in for breakfast in the morning. And I had to eliminate all of that. And as I I went through about two months on this diet, I remember very vividly having dinner one night and I thought, oh gosh, I'm not even feeling like that much better. I'm just going to try yogurt with my dinner and see how that goes. And as I was sitting at the table, I, I ate yogurt and about an hour later, if, if not a little bit more, I started to have a very severe vertigo attack. And it occurred to me that I hadn't experienced a vertigo attack in months and ever since, ever since starting this elimination diet. And so it was hard for me to see that even though I was dizzy every single day, I was still having an improvement because I had not had those vertigo attacks, which were totally disabling. And so it's kind of hard for me to see like the forest through the trees type of thing, because I was so focused on my daily symptoms. And I didn't realize like the improvements that were coming along from combining everything else. So 
that to me was a very clear indicator. Oh, maybe there is something to this diet and I'll give it a little bit more time. So about, um, I want to like say six to seven months in was when I really started to have totally dizzy free moments during the day. And that turned into totally dizzy free days. So about that time when I was having like more dizzy free times, I wasn't completely symptom free, but I felt more comfortable reintroducing foods. So I started to keep a journal of every food that I was reintroducing and I was able to bring back a lot of foods like avocados, onions, uh, lemons and limes and that sort of thing that that is normally recommended to stop on an elimination diet, my green elimination diet. But I did find some larger triggers, which were things like certain nuts, um, yogurt, and certain protein powders, actually. Uh, and I can't tolerate caffeine at all, unfortunately. It's, it's just too much for me. So even some decaf options really get to me. So I found all of that out through the elimination diet. There were just a handful of things, and it really did help me to kind of calm down my brain and bring down those some of those symptoms for me. So in my mind it was totally worth it and I still carry a lot of those that those things from it like reading labels into my life now that I've reintroduced foods. What I've sort of transitioned to is this new Mediterranean diet way of of eating which is less restrictive. Uh, but it, it, I still avoid, you know, a lot of my major triggers. I will check them every once in a while to make sure they are still food triggers for me as food triggers can change throughout the years and with certain treatments and everything like that. But overall, my big ones still tend to remain and they really do lower my migraine threshold. So I, I still avoid some of those, but I focus on incorporating certain foods into my diet now to help me with my brain health. So things like that are high in omega threes. Uh, I focus on using olive oil a lot in my cooking as well as just making sure my blood sugar stays stable throughout meals too. So always making sure my meals are pretty well balanced with the protein, uh, a carbohydrate and lots of fiber and a little bit of fat too. Um, if I do eat sugar now, I always try to do it with a larger meal so that I'm not, you know, spiking my blood sugar too. So I just try to be mindful of stuff like that throughout, not mm -hmm. skipping meals, that sort of thing. Wow. Um, and it does make a big difference. Wow. Wow. There's so much information there. And yes. <laughs> I wanted to first call out um, how cool it is that your doctor said there's not much evidence to support this, you know, diet for management of vestibular migraine, but let's try it. You know, that, mm -hmm. that he was open to, to trying something without a lot of evidence that uh, it kind of puts the power in, in your hands to control, you know, your, your symptoms. That um, is what I love about my, about my neurologist is he is always a very creative thinker, especially with meds and like none of the medications I've ever been on and treatments, they've all been very new. Um, like I started Timolol eye drops was a big thing for me and no one was talking about it at the time. And he was using it very creatively based on one very small study um, and it's, it's helped me. It's helped a lot of my migraine friends. It's the same thing with some of these neuromodulation devices. He really likes to just 
give them a try and see if they help people. And so while I see some doctors saying there's no evidence for that, you know, I see a lot of his patients improving because they're trying different things. Right, right. I've had yeah. a similar experience with that with, with Botox too. We, we just yeah. tried it on um, mm-hmm. for my headaches. Um, I had vestibular neuritis and now I have triple PD and cervical genic dizziness and we just gave it a try. And bingo, um, oh, I can yeah. walk better and, and it's been a it's been so amazing for, for my symptom control. So again, similar experience to Alicia. I had a similar thing with, with Botox too as well. So um, Jessica, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into, um, uh, into nutrition? You know, how did you become interested in working with nutrition? Cause I, I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong. It predates your vestibular problems. Is that right? Yeah, it does. So I, um, I've been a dietitian since, uh, I believe it's, I think it's 2007, I was a dietitian. So um, I didn't know what I wanted to do in my undergraduate degree. I I was like, I want to do science and health, something in that area. And I took an undergraduate first year nutrition course and I was, I was hooked on it. I loved the science of it. I loved learning about how all the foods we eat contain different nutrients and how those nutrients have different impacts um, across our body too, as well. It was very practical information that I could incorporate into my own life, and I just loved loved learning about about food and and, and nutrition. And um, I also really loved the different practice areas that dietitians can work in too. So some of them will work in hospitals um, with with inpatients, or they might work with outpatients. But some um, some of your listeners may not know dietitians also manage food service operations too as well so big hospital food service operations they do that too and they also work in the community and public health too um trying to help optimize the nutrition of of um of uh groups of people as well too so and then they also do research as well so i just love the the diversity of the career and all the different things you could do with it it was it was really really fun so um i took that one course and i knew right away that I want to do nutrition. So that, that was how I, how I got into it. Um, so I've been a dietitian for many years. Um, I don't, I don't do one-on-one counseling with patients. I am a focus in a, in a research and academic practice. So I, uh, I teach in, I teach undergraduate nutrition students. I supervise graduate students. I also do nutrition research too, as well. So um, I started thinking a little bit about nutrition and vestibular disorders, maybe about 18 months ago, um, after my condition started becoming better managed, I was like, oh, I wonder what's out there. Just kind of my curiosity um, of it. And I just started doing some searches on it. And I, I, I just found out there wasn't a lot out there, but I, I got quite curious about it. And both from my own experience and also just reading about other people's stories as well, too, um, so it became interesting interesting to me to, to do that. So that's kind of how I, how I, how I come here today. Too. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm re- really looking forward, Jessica, to hear, uh, I'm assuming early on, you probably discovered Alicia's work um, mm-hmm. and how that's been implemented into your life. So w- I'll save that, but I'm, I'm Alicia, since we know you as the dizzy cook, some of us uh, would love to hear how that started because I mean, here you are dizzy already. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to just, I'm going to write a book. Um, <laughs> how did that start? And then, but I also am also interested because, you know, we talked, touched on the Mediterranean diet and the elimination diet, but um, tell us too, since you're such an advocate for us all around food, um, how you as a dizzy cook uh, 
implement cooking as a healing process too, or um, eating as a mindful practice, um, because I know that's also part of this and not just the, the nutrients. Yeah. So in, so let me just start from the very beginning. I, when I graduated college, I got dumped (laughs) and all my girlfriends, you know, in Texas and Oklahoma, everyone gets married very young here. And all my girlfriends were, had very serious boyfriends and they were always going out on dates and stuff like that. And so I, I moved to to Dallas, finally um, got a job in watch design and my my way of bringing myself comfort when I was home alone was to make myself dinner. And I figured, well, you know, I am by myself. I have this extra income now that I can spend on myself. And so I would go and try out new foods and just go to the grocery store. Hey, I've never cooked with mussels before. What's that like? And so I would rely on a lot of like the famous cookbooks, um, you know, things like Julia Childs and, and Ina Garten and Smitten Kitchen was a favorite blog of mine back in the day. And, you know, even Martha Stewart, great, great classic recipes and would just kind of make myself something new all the time. Every week I would try to to experiment with the new food that I had never tested before. And so that's how I got exposed to cooking with a wide variety of foods and okay, I like the flavor of this. I don't like the flavor of this. I, I know how to cook this best. This is the way I like it cooked best. And so that really taught me a lot about cooking and grocery shopping from the very beginning. Once I got dizzy, that became a lot more challenging because a lot of us who live with this understand that going to grocery stores, it can be very triggering. Uh, the, the, just the amount of lights that are around you, this overstimulation, and it takes all of your energy just to go to the grocery store. I will say that 2020 changed a lot of things for us with grocery store pickup. Uh, that's something that I wish I would have had back in the day. And I think it's really been amazing for a lot of people with chronic illness. So I've used I, that I, too as well. It's yes. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I hate is they never pick out the best produce. And yeah. so I hate that. But you know, Random substitution as well from other things that you don't quite want that. But yes, yeah, the yeah. substitution. Yeah. Like, what were you thinking? But yeah, no, I <laughs> found that helpful too. Especially when I was really, really dizzy. I, yeah. I, it was wonderful having someone come to my door with with. I mean, I think that has made the cooking process a lot easier in in the long run. Um, It was something I had to learn how to do again. And so when I lost my job, I kind of lost who I was as a person. All I was identifying with was this like sick, dizzy person who couldn't be the same person that she was before. And so the one thing I tried to do every day, and I worked on this with a therapist, she asked me to write a list of all the things that I enjoyed to do in life. And cooking was a top one. And so it was something I tried to focus on something that brought me joy every single day. And so if you're sitting there fighting with insurance companies all day, trying to get into doctors, trying to manage, you know, get in, on their cancellation list, I mean, it's exhausting. And so the one thing that I did for myself was try to make a meal, go back to those, the, what I did before after college and everything, when I was feeling very lonely, 
which was make myself a meal that I hadn't tried before, which in this case was using these migraine friendly ingredients. So how would I make my favorite recipes, but make them work for this new diet? And so I spent a lot of time on my stool, which I recommend for everyone with a vestibular disorder who's trying to cook. Um, I always started the dinner with a mocktail, even if it's just like sparkling water with fruit or something like that in a, in a wine glass, just because that made it feel, it kind of set the tone like, okay, this is going to be a relaxing event. This is not going to be me stressing, just trying to get dinner on the table. And so when I thought of it like that, and I planned out more time in my day to really go through the process and put on music and enjoy it, it became very much a comforting experience for me. And it made me feel like I could reclaim my life a little bit because I knew for the most part, if I put these ingredients together, I would have a delicious meal at the end of the day. And there weren't all these unknowns like there is with migraine treatment, like you think you should try these meds and they'll work and they'll just make all your symptoms go away. But that often doesn't work for us. Whereas with ingredients and a good recipe, you can put all those things together and chances are it's going to turn out really good for you. (laughs) So that's how I loved to approach it. And it really became more of a mindful practice for me rather than a stressful thing. Now, of course, there are some days where you feel so sick And that's when I kind of like lean on to meals that are really good for freezing or meals that you can prep ahead. Mm -hmm. Uh, But trying to plan out meals for at least like five days, even if I was using leftovers, was was really, really helpful for me. And I noticed it made a difference just cooking more at home in the way I felt. Um, As far as like mindful eating, I will say that, you know, that – that comes kind of after you have to take things like one day at a time. And I'm still learning new things. Like I'm sure Jessica is going to share with us today. I'm currently working with a dietitian myself, but just learning new things about how to um, get new, more protein in your diet. Things I think we all struggle with how to balance that blood sugar, uh, that sort of thing. And to start to incorporate that now that I have a good, solid foundation of, of what works for me and what doesn't mm-hmm. trying to focus more on those type of things to fine tune and, and help me feel a certain way. Um, in my cooking education, a, a part of me or a part of what I've done in the past is go to a culinary intensive program in France. And the reason why I wanted to do that was to not only just learn about new like French cooking techniques, but also to learn about the way that they approach dinner time and gathering their ingredients for food. And it's very much a thoughtful process, like how they go to the market and talk to each of the vendors who are experts in what they do. And they care very much about what they're selling you. Um, You have a cheese guy, you have a lamb guy, you have, (laughs) you have a guy for strawberries. I mean, there's a guy, there's a guy, you know, who, who's growing this stuff himself. He very much cares about it. And I think in the U.S. we get so used to places like Costco and I love Costco. Don't get me wrong, but, but, you know, it's, it's always nice to get to know your food on a little more personal level and it makes it 
a little more enjoyable to 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 have those things um and you take a little more care in preparing it when you do that um when you, you know preparing it. alicia you're making me think of um i'm just realizing and this was sort of accidental but like i said at the top of the show i love your green tomatino salsa yeah one of my veggie beds has tomatillos jalapenos cilantro and shallots Oh I ended up buying so many of those because I would make that salsa like constantly. And <laughs> it was a way that I, A, had already had the ingredients here with me. B, was getting to be more mindful with the ingredients. And now I have a gazillion frozen up jars of it in my freezer for the winter. So it's really cool, you know, to even take that mindfulness with food another step and even think, you know, it's not that hard no. to even grow these ingredients. No. Um, yeah. No. So. I grow a lot of my own herbs now because I got tired of spending $2 for a little thing of basil. I mean, it, it does save you a lot of money if you can grow that stuff. Yeah. Mindful eating's actually been added to um, Canada's food guide even for the overall health, overall population because it's, it's decided it's, it's so important for healthy eating. Um, the new food guide yeah. focuses on what to eat and how to eat, but, but part of the how to eat part is the mindful eating piece. So that's really important that it's been, I think it's really great. And Alicia, I loved your examples of, of how you were doing that and Kimberly too. And it's just, it's so, it's so good that we're talking about this more and that it's been more, mm-hmm. um, be- becoming more common in the, in the, in our population. We still need to do it more, but I think, I think it's great that it's starting to become involved in some of our national guidelines. Now yeah. It's so yeah. easy to, yeah. um, uh, for me, you know, I eat lunch while I'm at my computer, you know, and I know, and I'm, I'm not thinking about it, you know, yeah. I'm just, I make a bowl and I eat what's in the bowl instead of, you know, if I'm sitting and being mindful about it, I can stop when I get full. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah. so many of us yeah. eat in front of the TV and we're mm-hmm. not, we're not thinking about it. So yeah, yeah I love that. But well, we're, and I still have days like that too. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. <laughs> Food's also really linked to quality of life too, as well too. So it yeah. can really bring us pleasure, connection, mm-hmm. enjoyment. It connects us to our culture too, as well. So um, yeah, being really thinking of food is so important. It's such a central part of our lives and yeah. um, it can really help us to, to heal and to be well too. Yeah. Yeah, Jessica. Earlier, we were um, we were talking about how there's not a lot of literature out there um, about the role diet plays in managing vestibular symptoms specifically, but we can also expand that to health uh, and and other chronic conditions in general. Can you maybe share from you know your research experience what you know about the um, about about what is known in research about um, diet and nutrition? In vestibular disorders, yeah. So um, there were a few things that, so again, about 18 months ago, I started kind of diving into this a bit more, as I mentioned before. So um, again, there's not, there isn't a lot out there on on diet and, and vestibular d- disorders. Um, it doesn't really surprise me a lot because, I um, mean, you know, we, a lot of people have trouble getting help and, and um, you know, there's not a lot of healthcare professionals working in this area. There's not as many as, as we need. So again, it didn't really, really surprise me. And, and there, from what I could see too, is there is no one really focusing in specifically on, on this area. Um, it's, 
it's um, there's people who are doing work in this area, but it's often um, part of other studies or they may be doing it. They have focus on something else and then they add in a diet, some information about diet somewhere. So I found it's kind of scattered in different places. Um, so uh, I'm not going to talk about everything today, but I'm going to focus on a couple of things. I'm not going to talk about migraines because Alicia's really done a lot of work in that area and she's, she knows a lot about it. So I'm going to leave th that with her, but um, I will talk about a couple of things. So the first thing I want to talk about is, is vitamin D actually. Um, so vitamin D and, and BPPV. Um, so vitamin D is, is a fat soluble vitamin. Have you heard of it before? Mm -hmm. Have you guys heard of it before? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's linked to a lot of different, um, health issues, uh, ranging from, it's mostly with bone health, a lot of the work on vitamin D, but it's also been linked to other things like a healthy immune system, dental caries too, as well. So it's a, it's, um, and it's a nutrient that we, we have trouble getting in our diet. Um, it's not in a lot of different foods. It's in sort of fatty fish and egg yolks and fortified milk is kind of the main sources. It's in a few other places too, but um, it's not in a lot of different foods. So a lot of people do have to use a supplement to to get it, but it has been, you know, when you type in kind of diet and vestibular disorders or diet and dizziness, that's like probably the top thing that comes up. I don't know if you've seen that before in any of your yeah, other I have. searches. Yeah. So especially with PPPV, I was surprised yeah. to see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because what, what they're saying is, is, is it maybe linked to low vitamin D levels in the blood and also to, um, it's also especially been linked to recurrence of BPPV2 from, from what I could see. And so, and some studies have found that vitamin D supplements can actually be maybe be beneficial for some people with low vitamin D levels too. And vitamin D is really important for calcium regulation and, and the otoconia or the crystals are made out of calcium. So that's why there's that link there between, mm. between those two. So, so I think for, for people who, who have, um, uh, BPPV or, um, especially recurrent and they may be worried about their vitamin D levels. It's something you can get your doctor to check really easily too as well. And is it is something that can be corrected with, with, um, with supplements. But again, it's something to talk to your, your doctor about too as well. So that was sort of the first thing I, I, I wanted to, to talk about there with, with research. Again, I can't talk about everything, but that was something. Yeah. Vitamin D has gotten a lot of press lately too. It's, it's um, kind of the sunshine vitamin. Um, uh, but again, we know that, too much sun exposure isn't a good thing, so that's why we have to go with with, with, with supplements oftentimes too, or, or foods. But again, it's not in a lot of different food sources. Eggs also contain some vitamin D as well too. Okay. All right. So any questions about that? Or no. Think? No. That's, yeah, I know. I, go ahead, Kimberly. Oh, well, I was just going to say it's, it's really important for migraine as well mm -hmm. to have good levels of vitamin D. So we did a blood test for myself mm -hmm. before knowing what to prescribe because I think a lot of patients just go out and they think, Oh, I need to get vitamin D, but often you don't know if you're low or if you, exactly. you know, there is it's such a thing as taking too much too. Exactly. So uh, that's an important blood test to, to get. I just want to talk about that too much piece, Alicia too. Um, yeah. That was really glad you brought that up. So Anytime you, you take supplement, anytime anyone takes supplements, and this is just something to, to think about, um, each nutrient that we, that, we, that we have available and that we need has different, we call the dietary reference intake. So those are the amounts that are needed for sort of general health. And they have different 
those are sort of our benchmarks of, of what we want to, um, to consume. So there's, there's, um, Two, a um, couple of things I want to talk about there. With every nutrient, there's um, usually a recommended dietary allowance. And that's an amount that need, that's needed to meet 97 to 98% of the needs of the, of the population um, or the adequate intake. If there's not enough data to calculate a recommended dietary allowance, then, then they use the adequate intake, which is sort of the amount that the general healthy population in that age and sex group needs. And then every nutrient also has a tolerable upper intake level too, as well. And so, um, and that's the level where that's the maximum level where, the, where there's not going to be any harm with taking that nutrient. So if you start going above that tolerable upper intake level for different nutrients, there's a potential for harm as well too. And this becomes really important when you're taking, when you're taking supplements as well too. So again, making sure that, that if you are going to take supplements, it's always important to talk to a doctor or a dietitian about it. Um, but making sure that you're, you're below that, that tolerable upper intake level too, as well. So something to keep yeah. in mind with, with supplement use. I love to hear, Alicia, that you and your doctor were so conscious as to, you know, yes. do a blood test before mm-hmm. you started working with supplements. Because I know you talk a lot about the supplements that um, that you've used. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe Jessica can talk to this too. I don't mean to get too much off topic, but there are some blood tests that don't work when it comes to supplements, and like magnesium is one that I see for that because it's not. When you're measuring magnesium, at least for migraine, it can't factor in what is crossing your blood-brain barrier. It's just measuring the amount of magnesium in your blood. Mm -hmm. So that is, I think, where people get slipped up is they're like, well, I'm not low on magnesium according to my blood test, but they don't really understand that you're not trying to get magnesium for your blood. It's it's for your brain, basically. <laughs> I've been told that uh, the magnesium threshold is pretty easy to figure out yourself. Yeah. <laughs> when you take too much, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a laxative. That's what my so, doctor said. Too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't need a blood test for it. You just need to you yeah. know, be mindful of your own body. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think every nutrient is going to be measured. There's different ways to measure different nutrient status levels and, okay. and, um, I think it's just to talk to your doctor or dietitian. They can advise yeah. on which which ones are are going to be relevant relevant for you. Um, I'll move on to Meniere's disease really quickly. I don't have a lot to say about that, but I could just say that there isn't a lot of data on the low salt diet that um, mm. that is commonly recommended. Um, huh. um, um, a recent um, uh, a recent uh, uh, position, uh, sorry, a uh, clinical practice guidelines and also some review articles have just said that the, the evidence for the low salt diet is really limited. I'm not saying people shouldn't follow it because it does help a lot of people, um, but I'm just saying that there's not a lot of randomized controlled trials on that on that uh, specific dietary recommendation. So, again, we know that it does work for a lot of people, um, and, and it's something that uh, you know can be really helpful and. The, the most recent clinical practice guidelines from 2020 for Meniere's disease did did recommend that as a as a as a therapy. Um, um, so it's something that um, isn't is important there. But there isn't a lot of evidence on that, unfortunately, because it is so commonly recommended. But we do know that it does help lots of people. So it's, I'm not saying not to have it, but I'm just saying that. The, the research data is, is limited in that area. Sorry, was, Which is crazy to me yeah, that yeah. here we have, it's included in the clinical practice guidelines. Yeah. We have <laughs> tons of anecdotal data yeah. uh, of people 
sharing that it makes a difference in their symptoms and yet no one's doing research on it. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's just weird to me that this is how medicine works. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was was quite shocking actually. Like I, I found that to be quite shocking as well too, but yeah, it's, it is something that does work for so many people and it, it, people should keep trying it. Um, But um, there is not a lot of evidence on it. Yeah. So, so, and I'm, um, I'll just clinical trials. Yeah. Give a shout out to, there are several um, books out there um, about from patients about their experience with Meniere's in a low salt diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, you can, you can get more information on Vita's website about that. We actually have an, an article on uh, diet um, dietary considerations mm-hmm. for vestibular mm-hmm. disorders with some references to, to books. I think you had a, a, a Facebook live last year too, if I remember from a, from a, on a low salt diet too as well. Yes. 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 With, I remember with one of the authors. Yes. Yes. Books. Yeah. Okay. And then the last, can I talk, I'll talk about, can I talk about one more area? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the last area I want to talk about is research on people's experiences with food and diet. Um, people with vestibular disorders and their experiences with food and diet. This is probably the area that I'm most interested in myself. Um, it ties into some of my other work that I do. Um, and a lot of these studies, they either use surveys to get information from people or they'll do what's called qualitative studies. Do you guys know what qualitative studies are? Have you heard of those before? Mm-hmm. A little bit, but it would be great if you could explain for our listeners. Okay. So what they are is they're studies that don't collect information on participants using numbers. They collect, inf- that would be quantitative studies, so that's more numerical, but they collect data more on people's experiences, perspectives, and behaviors and motivations. And they collect they collect that information using words, so things like interviews and focus mm-hmm. groups, and also observations too as well. So they'll go and, and the sample sizes are usually really small. They'll maybe uh, interview five to 30 people somewhere in there and they get really really rich data on those topics so a few and these could be really helpful to generate new research ideas as well as helpful for developing supports for people who live with different health conditions too and i think this is where we could i'm interested in this area as well too so there's been a few studies that have looked at you know people having trouble with um, some of the stuff we've talked about today so acquiring food uh, food preparation activities um, shopping difficulties there's been a little bit on that but nothing that's focused on food it's all been kind of dabbled in other studies too so there's been a little bit on that and challenges also with with social activities too as well so Mm -hmm. eating in restaurants too i know i've been overstimulated at many restaurants before and Alicia I don't you probably have been too as well <laughs> like, um, <laughs> um, so and then another part of some of this work is that I found really interesting was that there were I found four articles that provided that said that more than both more than 50 percent of their and these ones use surveys but they had more than 50 percent of their survey respondents said that they either did diet changes or received a diet intervention to manage their vestibular disorder, which I think as a, as a dietitian, this really interested me a lot that there's so many people who are using this, this tool um, to, to do that. And we, we don't really know a lot about people's experiences using that. We have Alicia, you've done a lot of, you've, I've, you've shared your story so well. And um, I think a lot of people have really, really learned from it. Um, but I know there's lots of, probably there's lots of other stories too, that, that, uh, people would have as well about making those those diet changes and um 
you know, I think I think that's something that I think we're 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 missing in our in our literature. I think that could really help us develop some 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 better supports too as well. So I can give you lots of feedback from my DMs if you <laughs> <laughs> I hear it all. Yeah. But we need to we need to I think you know we need to start um and that's great. Yeah, I know. I know there's lots of stories out there, but I think getting mm-hmm. them getting them out there in the in the peer reviewed literature is is yeah. really important too, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I love that you know we have research that is uh, patient focused. That's great to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, on this similar topic, you know, we were talking about supplements, um, and Alicia, I know you you talk about supplements a lot in your blog, and also gut health. Do you want to? kind of dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So gut, or well, let's start with the supplements. So I initially got a sheet of supplements to try from my neurologist. Like I think a lot of us do like here, take these and it will, you know, let me know how you are in six months. The thing about what they recommend is they are doing it based on research studies. And so I found out that magnesium oxide was often being recommended because that was the type used in migraine studies. Um, That was interesting to me because as I started researching different types of magnesium, I found that that can often like stimulate bowel movements a lot more than other types of magnesium. So I started looking at different types of magnesium. Um, I wrote an article for my website about it initially, just kind of researching different types and did a little small group with some of my migraine friends to look at the, the benefits of maybe using magnesium three and eight, and if it could help us with some of the symptoms like brain fog. Um, I published this on my website and with like the literature, this very limited research on it uh, for other patients with cognitive issues and how they saw benefits with it there. And as well as like our own experiences of testing this out. And what was interesting is out of all the supplements I tried, that was probably the one that I saw the quickest benefit with. And because I wasn't having caffeine in the morning, often I would feel really sluggish when I woke up. And I don't know if that's a like not caffeine thing or a vestibular thing, maybe both, (laughs) But I noticed that when I use magnesium three and eight in the morning, that that really helped sort of clear my brain and give me a little more energy. And so um, published on my website, what's interesting is I'm starting to see more people recommend it now, uh, as well as things like magnesium glycinate. So I actually take a combination of three different magnesiums because I found that works best for me. So I think sometimes with these recommendations, uh, looking to see what works best for you and even different types of supplements can be helpful because one brand's magnesium is going to be have a different makeup than another brand's magnesium. And so I've seen patients take one type that they don't tolerate well, and they switch to another type, and that can be very effective for them. So just because someone recommends or your doctor recommends supplements for you, you know, it really is what works best for you. So you kind of have to take it for a little while, see if you see a benefit. I will say it's, you can't just take things for like a week and expect it to have, have this big 
a clarifying moment. It generally takes about like three to four months to notice a difference on anything you take, whether it's medication, supplements, diet changes, that sort of thing. And to kind of work and see if you're seeing a benefit from it. And then you can always take it away to see if, okay, is this actually working for me or is this just giving me really expensive pee? You know, and that's what you kind of have to do. So there are supplements that I've continued um, because I see a big benefit from them. So that's things like my combination of magnesium and there are supplements that I've stopped taking. So I've stopped taking so much uh, riboflavin, even though that was recommended for migraine prevention, just because I wasn't seeing a huge benefit from it anymore. Um, I've had bad reactions to certain supplements that have been recommended for migraine too. So it's just, like I said, it's important to, to see what works best for you. As far as the gut health component, that is something I'm still learning. Like I said, I, I'm working with a dietitian now. And when I decided to work with a dietitian was because I had had two kids right in a row and I had very complicated pregnancies and C-sections and everything like that. So I have been on antibiotics a lot. I have been sleep deprived. I have not always been able to eat the way I would like to. And so that in turn can, you know, do not create a great environment for your gut health. I'm also very sensitive to certain strains of bacteria. So um, certain types of probiotics don't work well for me. It's the same thing. I, I can't tolerate yogurt for very, very well. So we're kind of looking into that. I'm trying to figure out what tests I actually need and what tests are a little woo for me <laughs> and that I don't want to spend that kind of money on. So going down that route, um, has been very interesting, but I know at the, at the heart of it is like eating a very, very diet can be very important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the gut microbiome is not, is not my focus of my, any of my research, but I know a, uh -huh. a little bit about it and I can, so it's, um, there's been an explosion of interest in this in the past yes. like, 10 to 20 years. It's burst. And, and I will say information on this topic changes daily. Um, so even I don't even like reading papers from a couple of years ago on this because I don't know if it's even relevant anymore. So um, basically our, our gut microbiome is made up of trillions of bacteria in our GI tract, especially in our lower GI tract. And um, it's been linked to a lot of different health issues, including mental health issues. So uh, depressions come up, gastrointestinal health cardiovascular health, diabetes, so much more. So, um, and um, the effects from the gut microbiome can happen through a lot of different kinds of, of pathways in, in the body. So um, just knowing that, and we're learning more about this every single day. I wouldn't be surprised, and again, that there might be a link, eventually discover a link to vestibular disorders too as well at some yeah. point. I, I don't think we've got any research on that yet, but or not much, but I wouldn't be surprised. I'm, that's a, well, that's a pure speculation for me. There is a great book by uh, Ed no. Young called "I Contain Multitudes." Did you read that one, Jessica? No, no I haven't read that book. No, well, it's, it's no. excellent, and he does he touches on so many different disorders um, mm -hmm. that are you know that have sort of microbiome precursors to those disorders. So yes. I, I highly recommend it. It's called I Contain Multitudes. And I read it like eight years ago. And I, I feel like I even remember something about dizziness in there, but I can't yeah. quote, don't quote me on that. 
yeah, no, it's it changes so much. It's a really, really hot area right now. And um, the big thing with the gut microbiome, Alicia, maybe you've heard this from your, your dietitian too, is fiber is really, really important and getting a variety of fibers. So we want kind of a lot of diverse fibers because the fi- the bacteria feed on the fiber mm-hmm. and they digest it. They produce what's called short chain uh, fatty acids. Um, and those have a lot of different effects in the body. So um, eat, basically eating lots of different kinds of, of fiber, which is found in plant-based foods. And we know that a lot of just the general public doesn't get enough fiber anyways. So this is something that, that, you know, is really important. Fiber is found in whole grains, vegetables and fruits, legumes, um, nuts and seeds as well too. So those are some, some sources of, of, of fiber too. So yeah, the gut microbiome is a really, really hot area right now. Well, let's, I, I know yeah. I'm jumping around here a little bit, but you, you just mentioned, um, whole grains and whole foods. Can you talk a little bit more about the role that whole foods play in a healthy diet? Yes. While you're talking about that, um, it's because I'm aware of, I don't want to keep you guys for so long, but I know we really want to get to blood sugar and I know that those are really connected. Mm -hmm. So maybe include some of your uh, understanding around balancing blood sugar and why that's important for vestibular patients. Yeah. So different um, blood sugar can have a lot of different impacts potentially on vestibular patients. We know that low blood sugar for pretty much anyone can cause you to be become dizzy or get headaches. Um, I just not feel well. I know for me, I get I get those kinds of, of things too if I don't eat eat enough food. Um, and we know that it's really important to make sure that we have stable stable blood sugars uh, uh, throughout the day. Um, so. And, and also, too, for Meniere's disease, it could be really important, too, as well, for people that really make sure their food intake is balanced uh, throughout the day, too. Um, so whole foods are foods that are, are pretty much as close as possible to their natural state. Um, so basically, if you think about picking a tomato off a bush or that kind of thing, those are those are whole foods. And we know whole foods are really, really rich in, in, in vitamins and minerals and fiber. Um as well as, and then, um, and then we, those are in contrast to more ultra processed foods or highly processed foods, which are foods that um, are really are they're they're high in added salt, sugar, and fat, and they're very shelf stable too, as well. So they taste really good, but they're not they're not very good for us. So it is really important that we get a lot of a lot of whole foods in our in our diet, and we know those whole foods have have blood sugar. I mean, have um have fiber in them that can really help, especially the fruit, vegetables and fruits, the whole grains that can really help slow down um, uh, uh, absorption of, um, of sugar in our body. And it can cause us to have that nice sort of stable blood sugar. If we eat something that's high in simple sugars, which is like table sugar or foods like candy, uh, baked goods, that kind of thing, those can cause our blood sugar to spike. And then, um, and then, and then, and then we get a then we get a sugar low after, and then we don't feel well too, right? Um, so those are things that we want want to avoid. So some things to help balance our blood sugar is to um, make sure that we uh, eat breakfast. That's a that's a really important uh, recommendation for balancing blood sugar, getting off to a good start in the day, and this can help regulate your blood sugar um, throughout the day as well too. Um, focusing on complex carbohydrates, so those foods that are in a lot of those um, whole foods or those those on those foods that are minimally processed. So, you know, vegetables and fruits, whole grains, legumes, that kind of thing. Those are those are foods that um, that can help. They take longer to digest because the sugar molecules in them are in 
big strands and so the body takes a long time to digest those and those can help keep our blood sugar uh, more stable too as well and those are again i mentioned some of the foods um and then the other I, thing i just uh, i'm sorry to interrupt i just wanted no. to share something that i think is kind of funny um no, go ahead. my husband recently told me that um popcorn is considered a, a whole grain is it that right? is yes it is it is so actually in canada's <laughs> previous food guide popcorn was a was a whole grain and they're listed in there so that's that is true so that's a good thing. <laughs> that's yeah. yes so that is a good thing i mean sometimes they can get you can add a lot of fat and on, oh yeah, I do that. Become like a less healthy choice, but yeah. but popcorn itself, yes, air pop popcorn is a is a whole grain uh, too as well. Um, yeah. And then I think too, when when the last thing I want to say about balancing blood sugars is to make sure that um, you know you eat frequently um, as well too. So having through three meals, um, again a couple snacks a, a day too, um, and then making sure meals have sort of um, half your plate is vegetables, a quarter of it is a is a is a whole grain product or a grain product, and then a quarter of protein, and then. Um, and then snacks should be a couple of different food groups. You should have a, a complex carbohydrate with a with a protein, ideally, in it too, as well. So, um, those are some things that um, can be can be really helpful for balancing blood sugar too. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. So, Alicia, I want to let's talk about hypervigilance because we've just spent an hour talking about like do this, try not to do that, consider this, <laughs> maybe do this. And of course, many of us vestibular patients are perfectionists, um, and that contributes to the dizziness we've, we've found. Um, so how do you navigate all of this information and still remain chill? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably best someone who's trying to navigate this herself too, I think it's probably best to focus on one thing at a time. So for me, I, 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 what I see a lot of people have an issue with is they're trying to combine different diets when they're trying to do an elimination diet. So I said, okay, if your goal is to find if you have migraine food triggers, then focus on that for now. And then the other stuff you can figure out later. Um, it's the same thing with, with, if you're focusing on, you know, just trying to make small changes, like Jessica said, eat breakfast every day. So that's can be one goal is just, okay, I'm going to just focus on having breakfast every day. And my breakfast is not going to, you know, just be oats, but it's going to be, I'm going to add an egg to that, or I'm going to, you know, make this turkey sausage for it to get in some protein in the morning or add cottage cheese or, or whatever works for you. I think making those small changes and once you get comfortable with that, adding something else in is really an effective way to go about it. Because for me on the elimination diet initially, it was very overwhelming. And so my first, my first goal was to just try to figure out reading labels and find products I really like that would help make my cooking easier. So once I had those products down, I could shop very easily. I didn't have to think about it, read labels every time and that sort of thing. I could just go grab what worked well for me and go from there with the recipes. Um, I also think meal planning is a highly effective tool for people with these disorders. So I try to make at least three new meals a week and then 
incorporate meals that are going to work for other nights of the week too. So those are things like I will do a lot of slow cooker chicken or slow cooker pulled pork. And so I'll use that chicken one night and do tacos with it. And then the next night I'll do a salad with it or I will put it and, you know, make flautas or I will use it for a soup or something like that. So I'm getting two different dinners with one way of cooking. And so that cuts down a lot on my time cooking. And it also gives me variety too. Mm-hmm. Which I would I imagine well also too. brings the joy too, which it yeah. seems like one way to yeah. counteract the vigilance is to have joy with it, whatever that looks like, because food should be It should be fun. And that's the other thing too, is I will see a lot of people get wrapped up in, is this causing me trigger? Is this, is this a trigger for me or is it, am I just having symptoms all the time? And so I always tell people like to not focus on trying to figure out triggers in the moment. You just try to figure out how do I eat the best during my day? That'll make me happy. And so a lot of times, like with Thanksgiving, where we have holidays coming up, right? And so people are really worried about what they're going to eat. So I tell them to pick out, you know, a few recipes that'll work for you, make something, send something to to someone else who's going to be cooking at that meal, and then allow yourself like a little bit of fun. So whether that is, you know, whether that is chocolate cake or a high sodium item or something like that, or if it's red wine, that's what your, you know, fun food is and you enjoy that. And then you are mindful of the other things you're doing. So you have reminds a me of the 80, 20 rule too. Yes, exactly. Your, you know, also <laughs> the thing that they often yeah. say is, you know, 80% of the time eat healthy and then, and then yeah. kind of splurge on that, that other 20% or, or 90, 10 or whatever you kind of choose. But yeah, you don't want to restrict yourself from not having those, those fun favorite foods. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. one glass of wine works better than two, or maybe mm-hmm. you choose the cake instead of the wine or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that's and don't beat yourself up if you feel kind of crappy the next day. It's like, you, you just kind of, yeah. you know, it's yeah. okay. I, I know these symptoms, it's not, you know, cause for freak out. It might happen and that's okay. So that's, that's what, what exactly a cute meds are for. Yeah. 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 <laughs> This is such a huge topic. I mean, in yes. an hour we've, we've covered a lot, but there's, yeah. we didn't even get to everything that we, we wanted to talk about. We're going to have to have another conversation another time. <laughs> yeah. But I, so I want to thank you both <laughs> so much for sharing your experience, your expertise, and, and, uh, for for more information, obviously go to thedizzycook.com, right? <laughs> Can I just make one plug too? I just want to say if anyone has any nutrition questions too, um, do seek out a, you know, don't be afraid to seek out a registered dietitian as well too. Um, you can look at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics or you can talk to your primary care provider as well too if you have any questions about nutrition right. because nutrition can be really hard, can be yeah. really hard and confusing. There's a lot of, a lot of mixed messaging out there. Everyone knows about yes. food. Everyone has an opinion on food. So yeah, don't be afraid to talk also to a dietitian um, as yeah. well too, if you have any questions. Jessica, if you have any links that you'd like to share, we can include that in the, the YouTube uh, description yeah. too. I can yeah. share a link for the um, Academy of Nutrition Dietetics Find a Dietitian page and also yeah. for some pages in Canada too as well, Dietitians of Canada and uh, unlockfood.ca as well too. Yeah. Right. And make sure you go to their website too and like look at them before to 
to make sure like their views kind of align with yours. And because there's a lot of like Instagram dietitians out there now who are not the best at advice. (laughs) It's perfect with a dietitian. um, What I would suggest is, is talking to them, getting a sense of it's going to be a good fit. You may need to, um, talk to a few different ones, like, like physiotherapists or doctors too, you know, yeah. and, um, sometimes the first one is not, not, um, the one you end up working with, but they all have different areas of expertise that, that, um, so, so, um, but I, I know, um, for many people, a dietitian could, could be a valuable uh, care team member as well. Great. Well, thank you all. This has been such a great conversation. I can't wait for part two. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to ICU this month. We hope this conversation sparked new understanding of the vestibular journey. And for all of our patients out there, leaves you feeling just a little more heard and a little more seen. I see you.